Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That with Neil Delamere and Dave Moore. If you want to get in touch, I'm at Neil Delamere Comedy on Instagram. He's at Dave Today FM, and we're proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. On this show, if you're just tuning in, if you're just joining us, well, where have you been for the last five seasons? Number one. <laughs> and number two, basically the show is we try and tell you things that you should know, um, but maybe you don't know. And they're interesting things backed up by experts in the second half. And today... Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's an important that's an important distinction. The experts come in the second half. In yes. the first half of each episode, we tell you interesting things that you maybe don't know that have absolutely no backup whatsoever, except possibly that we heard something in the pub toilet once. I know we do. I have sources in my episodes and you have a bird told me in my dreams. <laughs> yeah. You have these mystic visions. You go off into the desert with, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that drug. I can't remember what it is. Ayahuasca. Oh, is ayahuasca. It? Ayahuasca, yes. Yeah, and, and then you come back and tell me random stuff. And But, uh, you know, you've, you usually show me a source. So <laughs> I believe you up till now. <laughs> up till now, yeah. Well, well no, I mean, listen, all my stuff today is sourced. I just can't remember where. It was in some shamanic tent somewhere at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it is your turn to tell me something interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. What do you got? Okay, well, actually, I do think you're going to enjoy this one because we've done a couple of episodes on things in space. Yeah. We talked about uh, when we talked about the volcanic eruption that gave us Frankenstein. We did mention that there were, for example, ice volcanoes in space that spew out ice and uh, water vapor and things in, 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 you know, into the unknown of space. So we're going to go to space today, except we're going to go to our nearest spatial neighbor and we're going to go to the moon. And Neil, you may remember that you presented us with comedians in the past who yeah. have been able to, you know, step outside of the world of comedy. Like, for example, uh, Nick Sampson did the episode about the St. Louis Olympic Marathon. Do you remember in 1904? Yeah, because he did a show in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival about it. Yeah. Well, I may have thought that was a great idea, that way you did that. And I've gone to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and found a fella <laughs> called Matt Hobbs, who is a comedian, uh, also a scientist and a moon landing enthusiast. And he is going to tell us in part two about the lad yeah. who turned down the chance to go to the moon. And this lad is the exact opposite of who you might think it is if you start guessing now. So don't start guessing now because 
you okay. look at the opposite. Okay. But we'll get to that in part two, right? Cut to 40 minutes later and I'm yeah. still shouting out names <laughs> yeah, from the phone. Exactly. So exactly. he's the exact opposite of the person who I think would like to go to the moon. Okay. Okay, you've just ensured I don't listen to you for the next 25 minutes. Exactly, yeah, you're going to think of that along with everyone else. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do in part one. I'm going to tell you about other moons because there are so many. And the thing is, we keep discovering new moons, even within our own solar system. Like, for example, when we launched the Voyager probes about, what, four decades ago, you know, we thought that Jupiter had nine moons and that Uranus had seven, whatever. Now they have, like, you know, there's 90-something moons around Jupiter and there's... 20 something around it but i don't think they're the most interesting moons most interesting moons in our solar system are around saturn okay so we're going to just journey in here through think about what you know about saturn okay so Mm. saturn in case anyone's has difficulty with the solar system saturn is the one with the rings yeah big yellow one rings. big yellow one tilted to its side and the rings going around the equator of the planet and then obviously spread it one of the maddest things nothing to do with moons one of the maddest things about those rings is they're basically 10 meters. What? Yeah. Like, it's what? so insane. Yeah. So, so, like, a lot of them, mo- most of the rings are so tiny in terms of their height. Yeah. But they're massive in terms of their width and their, their spread across. And that's why we can see them. But they're tiny. They're not very tall things at all. They just reflect the light. And so we can see them. But it's insane that these things are 10 metres tall in most parts. Did you ever have that childhood toy that looked like Saturn that you stood on and bounced up and down? I did. Do you remember the name of it? I do. No, what was it called? The Lolo Ball. Really? Yep, the Lolo Ball. How do you remember the name of that? Because, like, I mean, you're slightly older than me, but I, I, I seem to remember you telling me before, up until that you got the Lolo Ball, you used to play with, like, a stick and a ring and... <laughs> or, or where you would catch the, when you catch Neil, a ball in the spoon isn't that what yeah. you did at the hedge school it, it was not a ball it was a rounded potato and, we, <laughs> and it, ah now I know you're lying because the potato didn't come on until the Spanish brought it back so you're clearly lying now it was an egg the reason I know the Lolo ball is because it took the front teeth of so many of my pre-communion school friends. That I, I remember it was an instrument of death and torture. That was the one you could actually get free in a dentist. The dentist used to yep. just hand them out to yeah. ensure that you came back. <laughs> you go. Because the parents said, no, no more pogo sticks, please. Oh, this is way safer. Yeah. Slightly, slightly deflated ball with, with a ring of plastic. What could possibly go expensive dental treatment? Yeah, do you know the way a horse kind of knows? It just leads you uh, to the place that you go most often on a yeah. bogo ball or whatever the hell it was called. <laughs> he just brought you ball, yeah. to the closest dentist. <laughs> yeah, he it's just, just like, a, like a homing pigeon. Just brought you back there. <laughs> and of course, the most uneven surface was just outside the dental surgery where you were guaranteed to go <laughs> yeah, on yeah. your face. We're going to absolutely get sued by dentists. For oh, saying, definitely. And, and Lolo ball manufacturers, whoever okay. makes that anymore. Anyway, let's go back to the rings for a second. Okay, so the yeah. rings are... Actually, just made up of tiny particles of ice and rock. Mm. And I don't know if you know, but one of the features of the rings is that there's actually gaps. Okay. Oh, so oh. you think about it, like it's, it's, it's not just, a, a, you know, one kind of continuous ring of it's, it's, it's a ring then followed by the Cassini gap. And then there's a, like named after other astronomers who've discovered the, the gap. So they are literally uniform gaps in the rings that go around. And they are created and policed by, and this is a great name for something, Neil, Shepherd Satellites. 
No. Yeah. So what these are, these are moons. Okay. And they effectively clear the way for these gaps by sucking in some yeah. of the particles that, so like, you know, the ones that are kind of get dislodged and come out that would perhaps eventually form their own new ring. No, they get sucked into the moon. They're impacted into the moon. And then other ones, they just force back out by their gravitational forces. They go, no, you back in, back in there to the ring where you were. So they basically clear these rings all the way around. And that's when you look at the rings of Saturn, you will see that there are, yes, line, 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 gap, line, line, gap, big, and they have names and they're done by these. And one of the moons I want to tell you about today does a job in there. It is the closest one to Saturn and it's called Pan. Now, I feel a bit bad for it being called Pan because like some of the moons have class names. Like we'll get to a few of them in a while that have good names. But like there's, you know, they're they're from Greek mythology. Uh, like, for example, I have a very famous keyboard called the Korg Triton. One of the moons is called Triton. Triton. I am a god. I'm some kind of a brilliant, like, it's a great name. So I am a god and also an electric shower. <laughs> yes, of course. But this guy is just called Pan. So, well... I'd call them Keith and Daphne. <laughs> yes, actually. Why do they not have names? Some of them are named after um, Shakespearean characters. But again, they're disappointed because they're kind of, they're called Ophelia, which is a cool sounding name. You do want them to be called Derek. Okay, so let's go back to Pan, right? Pan is, it's 134,000 kilometers from the center of Saturn. So it's actually very close to Saturn. It's very small as well. It's only 35 kilometers across. And 23 okay. kilometers wide and tall. But here's the best thing about it. It looks like, do you know fresh pasta that you get in the supermarket? Like where, in our house anyway, with four kids, it's like, I have neither the money, the time, nor the interest to care about the nutritional intake of my children. So I'm going to get them fresh pasta from Dunn's, right? So basically, it takes two minutes in a pot, you pour a bit of sauce over it, and you hand it to the children and go, Shut up and eat that, right? <laughs> but in there, you you get tortellini, okay? Yeah. So tortellini, if anyone knows them, you'll know the shape I'm talking about. It's a very uh, unsatisfying shape. It's not spherical. <laughs> it's just a folded over kind of hand-creased, irregular shape of pasta. And of course, we know for a fact that pan is full of ricotta because all moons are made of cheese. We know Ob this, absolutely. Obviously, obviously. Yep. Or if you fried an egg... And then fried another egg and flipped one egg upside down. Yeah. And then put the other egg on top of it. You'd have the flat bit of the white egg and you'd have a bulbous bit of the yellow. Yeah. That's the shape of pan. Okay. I think we can all thank God that you're not an astronomer. That <laughs> you have to describe what? these things. The double fried egg theory. This is a good theory. <laughs> the, the tortellini uh, suggestion and is the, and is this is this a, a bouncer moon then is this yeah. this is the or you, you can't come in you're, yeah. you're wearing runners leave leave me gap clear there come on members only I don't care where you go but you just can't be in here are they just clicking of the little clicker with all the rocks <laughs> that have come out one out one in but this yeah. is one of these shepherd moons is it Sh Sh a shepherd satellite yeah yeah so and um, the reason for its shape now, the, the, well there are theoretical reasons for a shape because we don't know right so the, the theoretical logic of this weird kind of sphere, in fact, you know what, it quite resembles Saturn, actually, in the sense that it's, it's like quite round and then it has this kind of equatorial ridge around it, right? Yeah. And the theory is that 
it is it is a piece of ice and it has attracted other smaller pieces to it and that once the the bigger of the smaller pieces was it kind of it was finished with all of them the little bits that were left kept going to the equator because that's where they were being attracted to and right. so then it was finished making its kind of you know as spherical a bit as it could be, make and the rest was just kept attracted to the to the equator and that's why it it genuinely looks like a mini saturn and it's a very interesting moon so like men tend to put weight on around their waist <laughs> yeah so are we, that it's kind of that sort of the vibe, is it? I'm that, if you're going with that, I'm going with that. I'm happy to say that all my yeah. carbs go straight there. Yeah, pan, yeah, Hips pan fine, is legs fine, bum, lovely, lovely bum. I have a lovely bum. <laughs> pan is a man in his mid forties. That's absolutely what he looks like. He's a man moon. It's a man moon. Yeah, man moon. Hyperion. I told you there were moons with cool names. Hyperion. Hyperion is the largest irregular object known. In the solar system. Okay, now what I mean by that... Yeah, well, what? What, what does that mean? Oh, he can't be trusted. I mean, he makes a bowl of his vat every year. Sometimes he gets it right, but he's irregular. Or, or is he irregular in that he does excrete large rocks, but you just don't know when, and it depends on his diet? Is it... Was he one of the irregulars, which I think is like an auxiliary force? Um, I mean, there's so many ways. What, what yeah, do you mean? I should probably clarify irregularly shaped is what okay. I'm hinting at. So obviously we know most objects in the universe and certainly in our solar system Have are beautifully spherical. Yeah. Okay. And they're very nicely put together. And yes, some of them are gas some, and some of them are a little bit irregular, but this guy is all over the shop, right? There's nothing, you couldn't put a shape on this. Like if you thought of the ugliest, mis most misshapen potato you could think of, that's kind of where we're at with this, right? Now, it's big enough. It says it's the largest irregular object in the solar system that's known at the moment. It's 360 kilometers wide, which, again, if you compare it to the fellow we were just talking about, Pan, he was only 35 kilometers. So it's 10 times bigger. And it has what's known as a chaotic orbit, okay? So as you know, once you when you're orbiting a larger body, you spin, and sometimes you spin in the same direction as the body. Sometimes you spin the opposite direction. You may spin up or down or whatever, but it's still in in one direction all the time. Mm. A chaotic orbit is up for a bit, backwards, down, left, right. This thing is completely insanely spinning. There's no pattern to it, which I think is really unfair to anybody who gets motion sickness. Because you, <laughs> if you, if you ever end up on Hyperion, it's going to be like the worst roller coaster you could ever imagine. <laughs> imagine the wobbles you'd be getting if you're sitting on Hyperion. You just can't get used to it. No. I mean, that would take a lot of quell, wouldn't it? How, how, are, you in, how are you in that sort of motion? Uh, well, uh, actually, I was... Do you get sick I, on planes or, or no, trains I, or roller coasters? No, I was going to ask you, uh, simply because I don't go on roller coasters. So planes and trains, but I don't mind if I'm traveling backwards on a train. I do mind if I'm traveling backwards on the plane because that doesn't happen. But, you know, <laughs> but like, I don't mind. No, I've, I've no kind of that's motion. Too, that's too steep a climb. Uh, or is it, no, it's too, yeah. is it too steep a climb or too steep a dive? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> One or the other, it's not it's not good if you're going backwards in the plane. No. But no, I don't mind. I don't get car sick and none of those things. But I will not go on roller coasters. Now, this is not because I get motion sickness. It's yeah. because I don't trust carnies. Right. Simple as that. I don't trust anybody. I don't care if you're qualified. I don't care if you're an engineer. I don't care if you have a master's. I don't care. When you go to a theme park, yeah. you know, the 
the soda fountain, the, the Coke machine might be broken. The ice cream freezer might have malfunctioned. The burger sauce dispenser could be blocked, right? These yeah. are standard things that could happen in theme parks. Well, then I feel like the rivets on the upside down 35,000 kilometer an hour roller coaster <laughs> is also potentially going to have something wrong with it on the day that I go. So I will never go on anything. Would you allow your kids to go on those things? Though? Knock yourselves out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, quite, quite literally, and also, also whatever way you want to interpret. I mean, I don't care what I feed them with the irregular tortellini. <laughs> I don't care what death-defying traps they go on. No, I've got I, four of them. No one's going to miss one or two. <laughs> it's going to be fine. We just went on a family holiday to Orlando to do the theme parks. And obviously, I don't go on anything. My wife barely goes on, like, the waltzers at best. She wouldn't survive on Hyperion. And when, like, the older two lads, like, were kind of going, I think I might go on this, I think I might go on that. They went on one very medium roller coaster, came out to two of them almost in tears and went, nope, I'm not doing any more. And I was like, they're my kid. <laughs> you went to Orlando and you didn't go on any of the rides. Mother of God. It's like going to Jerusalem and not looking at any of the religious stuff. <laughs> it's like going to Stonehenge and going, the grass is very well kept, isn't it? What is wrong no, with you? I literally didn't. And and, and uh, like I was there you, for Do you go to the zoo weeks. and not like animals? What? <laughs> You, it's the like you're only, torturing yourself the for only thing, God's sake. The only thing I went on was in in one of the parks, there was a Dr. Zeus. You know him? The, yeah. The, yeah. So he had, obviously he's for very young children. Yeah. And there was a, a train that went, it went up all right, but then it stayed at that level for a long time. Then it had a very gentle decline back down and then went round and went <laughs> up again. <laughs> And I went on that, and I didn't feel particularly safe on that. You're such a weirdo. <laughs> it's like a hermit doing an escape room. <laughs> just, everybody else leaves, and he goes, "I just, I'm just going to stay here on my own. I really like the peace and quiet." I've, it's the only person ever to have locked himself deliberately into a, to an escape room. That's so odd. Yeah, I know. I am odd, but no, I would never go on that, and therefore I would never take a day trip to Hyperion. If that was an offer from Elon Musk's future <laughs> trips, like it's almost willfully stubborn. That's what that is. <laughs> I'm still trying to think of the best analogy. I think it's like a creationist going to the Galapagos and going, "God made that. God made that. <laughs> God made that. God made that as well." So back to Hyperion for a second. Okay, it only has half the density of water. Wh- what? Yeah, I listen. I am no scientist, but well, I think we've established that anyway. <laughs> But it only has half the density of water. This thing, it's its made up of ice, basically. So it gets hit all the time by these fellas that are coming out of the rings trying to be, trying to get into the club as you rightly, mm. it's a bouncer. It's going, yeah, hey, are you? So the small fellas goes, hey, are you? Just get in here. And it sucks it into themselves. Okay. And the other bigger fellas goes, now back out there. But the ones that got, they hit into it yeah. and they create these massive craters. In fact, one of the craters on Hyperion is 120 kilometers wide. Wow. Okay, that's that's kind of amazing. What a skate park. What a skate park that would be. <laughs> but here's the thing. Avril Lavigne would be hanging out there all the time, looking for fellas. <laughs> it is, as a result, it is one of the most interestingly shaped objects 
in the world, our surface objects, because it actually resembles a sponge. Have you ever seen a fossilized sponge from kind of, you know, dinosaur ears? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> If anybody's listening to this, he's only about two years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. a bit more, but still, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I have seen a fossilized point. So yeah. it, but that's what Hyperion looks like. So it's spinning in all these mad ways as it goes around uh, Saturn. And it looks like a mad sponge, and it's getting hit all the time. It's not like some of them are ancient, sure, but it's getting hit all the time. And it's doing its job and being a shepherd satellite. Another one is unbelievable. Its name is Mimas, M-I-M-A-S. And in fact, I'm going to send you a picture while we're talking, Neil, because I, and I know this is like obviously isn't uh, helpful to anyone who's listening. But if you ha- if you are listening and you can Google a picture of Mimas, type in Mimas Death Star, right? Oh my! And you'll God. get two of them side by side. Now, Neil, you're looking at that. Yeah, you have to agree with me. There is no way that George Lucas and the designers didn't copy Mimas when they created the Death Star. That looks exactly like the Death Star. It looks uh, so. It's a ball. It looks like a ball with an indentation in it that you would. Uh, that looks like to be on the same position. Yeah, it now, looks exa- exactly the same. Yeah. Do you want to know the wildest thing? That is a complete and insane coincidence, because Star Wars came out in 1977 mm. when the Death Star and uh, was there. That's the first time we saw it as humans. And the first time we saw Mimas was in 1980. Yeah. I mean, you say it like it's an amazing coincidence, but all you're saying is that all scientific knowledge has found something in the universe that looks like a George Lucas creation. <laughs> yeah, that's actually I mean, that's, true. That's all that we're saying, really. <laughs> Although <laughs> it is weird that it looks so like a George Lucas creation. And here we are finding it three years later. That is still a, a, some kind of a coincidence. Let me tell you about the crater that's in it that looks exactly like the kind of laser crater in the Death Star. Yeah. It has a name. It's called Herschel is the name <laughs> of the crater. It's of course it is. <laughs> it's 140 kilometers wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, its walls are five kilometers tall. So you were talking about a skate park. Imagine yeah. trying to do like going up and doing a 180 at the top of that. You'd be going... She's I'm going up here now, a fair while. Uh, <laughs> for well, uh, five kilometers. Yeah, I've got 300 kilometers done. I have another uh, 4.7k to go till I reach the top. It's absolutely massive. And in the middle of it, if you look at the picture of Mimas again, in the middle of the crater, you'll see a peak yeah. that sticks out. That's six kilometers tall. That peak is six kilometers tall. So is that just, does that come up from the bottom of the crater and then, so the top of that is a, is a kilometre over the, the uh, over the Over the thing. So yeah, I'd imagine, again, again, no scientist, but I imagine massive impact, mm. uh, obviously shoves all of the matter out of the crater, but then some of it settles back down in the peak and that's what you get right in the middle of it. It's absolutely phenomenal. Tony Hawk alone that by the end of this podcast. <laughs> Okay, yeah, Iapetus, Iapetus. I don't know. It's I A P E T U S. This is cool because this moon is known as the Invisible Moon, not the Invisible Man, the Invisible Moon. Now it's big, right? Okay, it's about half the size of our moon, right. and it orbits like some kind of I don't know, three hundred thirty-five million miles or something. I don't know. Actually, I don't know, so I could be wrong. Anyway, it's millions of miles from Jupiter as it is orbiting. But Cassini, the Italian astronomer, observed this moon about three hundred and fifty years ago. But he couldn't work it out because he could only ever see the moon to the right of Jupiter. And he thought he was going crazy because he was all the other moons. He go, there's the moon over there. Oh, yeah. Now it's gone. It's gone dark. 
And, yeah. cool. and there it it's is over there. Him. Okay. And, yeah. and, and you look at this and you go, okay, there's that fella there now, that really bright lad. I see him. And then he'd be gone. And you go, oh. And then he'd appear again on the right hand side and you go, ah, here's there's some kind of orbit we don't know about where it goes forwards and backwards. What has happened? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Again, the Voyager probes went and took pictures of it and they figured out what it is. Okay. So, you know, the way on a tennis ball, you have those kind of. It's divided in two, but it's like the yin and yang kind of thing. It's not, it's not yeah. a, yeah, it's not a straight kind of cut the diameter in half. It's kind of weirdly shaped. It has that scenario, but it has a dark side and a light side. Okay. And all he could ever see, Cassini, was the light side because it's about five times brighter than the dark side. So it would go bright, 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 and then it would go behind Saturn. It would come back out, and then it would be like, oh, hang on, it's gone. It's not gone. It was just the dark side you couldn't see with the telescopes that, that he had on, and that we had until we sent Voyager. So that's why it disappears. There's a theory wow. that actually the dark side is actually made up of some kind of carbon-based detritus, some material. So there's a mild possibility that that could be living. What? Now, again, no one's got, we haven't gotten close enough with any probes to be able to like test any of this. But the fact that it's, they, they think it's carbon-based may yeah. possibly mean that there is some kind of life in it. The other thing that this moon has, which is phenomenal, right? This is if, can I just say, go on, if, go on, there, yeah. if there is, what do you think the, the life will be? I would suggest go on. It's probably an Irish pub. <laughs> I mean, they're absolutely <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> there would be some kind of single celled organism. Yeah. And then there would be a pub with a sign that says Athen Rye, 420 million <laughs> kilometers. <laughs> there'd, be a, there'd be a typewriter hanging off yeah. the wall. There'd yeah. be a bicycle. There'd oh, be, there'd yeah. be the fella, the fella carrying the, the, the girder. steel beam. Guinness girder with, is good for Guinness you. is good for you. He'd be there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it would be 9 million point seven five parsec cent pounds for a pint of absolutely <laughs> shite Guinness. Yeah, Guinness. It would be terrible. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. Okay. Um, but uh, the theories exist, right, that this is carbon-based. The other cool thing about it is that it also has, much like Saturn does and much like Pan did at the start we explained, it has a little ridge around the equator. I say little. It's 13 kilometers tall. Now, you remember we did the episode on Olympus Mons. Remember I told you about the yeah. tallest thing in our solar system is Olympus Mons, which is a volcano on Mars. Yeah. That's about the same. This is almost the same, almost as tall as Olympus Mons. It's 20 kilometers wide and it runs for the entire dark side of this moon, Iapetus, right? Wow. And again, they don't know why it's only on the dark side. They don't know why it's so massive. They know that it's absolutely ancient because of the way it's been uh, cratered as well, the way that's happened. So, but they also have theorized that it might be related to the carbon-based material and that the carbon-based material might be coming off another object that only faces the dark side of the planet, which is why there's more of the planet there and it's why it's some kind of carbon-based thing. This is potentially fascinating. In other words, we have to you know, investigate it further, but Iapetus might be the weirdest moon that's out there. Certainly the weirdest one around Saturn. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's not potentially fascinating. It is fascinating, but it is potential for life form and everything else. And everything, stuff we just don't understand. You're good at this, man.
well, I don't know whether I am, but I know who is Matt Hobbs, a comedian, a scientist and a moon landing enthusiast. He's going to join us to tell us all about the lad who turned down the chance to go to the moon. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Right, Neil, uh, you grabbed a comic from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival last season. If anyone wants to check out the incredible story that Nick Sampson told us uh, about the St. Louis Olympic Marathon. What, was it 1904, Neil? 1904, yeah. He was brilliant. He did an Edinburgh Fringe show on, on the whole thing, yeah. Oh, and the, the story itself is absolutely it's unhinged. You have to go back and listen to it. Uh, so go back over our back catalogue, find the the marathon episode and have a listen. Um, but look, I thought I might do the same, Neil, if that's all oh, right. Yeah. So I found the perfect man to tell us an amazing story. I'd like to say I've nabbed Matt Hobbs, stand-up scientist and moon landing enthusiast. Uh, Matt has done a show in the Fringe called Moon Talker, and he's here to join us now. Matt, how are you? Yeah, all good. You did two shows this year, didn't you? Yeah, so I host a show called Stand Up Science because I'm a biochemistry PhD. So we have different comedians with a background or interest in science on. It's quite fun, a little bit different. And then I did my own show, Moon Talker, about the moon landings. Right. Well, look, this is the thing, because in part one, I told Neil, it's the only thing I told him so far about this part of the uh, of the episode, 
is that we're going to talk about the man who turned down the moon. So let's start there. <laughs> there is a man who decided that he wouldn't land on the moon, even though he had the opportunity. And it probably isn't someone that you might think. So tell Neil and tell everyone, who is it? It's Michael Collins. Now, you might not have heard of him. He was uh, one of the free men on the Apollo 11 mission, the first time man stepped foot on the moon. But what not everyone knows is that whilst Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got to go down onto the surface of the moon, Mike had to wait in the main spaceship for them to return. He was kind of the moon's first designated driver. (laughs) (laughs) He's just texting them, circling the block, going, I haven't got parking. Jeez, I said five minutes, for Christ's sake. The two boys are slamming Blue Wicked inside. Come out of the moon. I'm outside. I'm outside. Well, you, you say we might not have heard of him. Irish people certainly have heard of Michael Collins because he shares a name with a very important Irish politician who's had movies made about him. So whenever Here's the name Michael Collins. They went, they go initially go, Michael Collins went to space. <laughs> and then they go, No, it's a different but oh, it's a different fellow, was it? As if there's only one Michael Collins ever. So so the Michael Collins who was in the spaceship. Oh yeah, he wasn't the politician, Neil. Honestly, I swear to God. Oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just shut up. Uh, <laughs> this is brilliant because like the one person who you would think Oh, if I offer them the opportunity to go to the moon, it's going to be Michael Collins because he's the person who everybody goes, ah, you didn't even get to go to the moon. Then turned it down. So explain that to me, Matt. So that basically there is one guy who decided who went on all of these missions. And after he'd done his mission, that guy, Deke Slayton, said, it's a bit complicated, but basically, do you want to be the backup crew commander for Apollo 14, which would have meant he'd landed on Apollo 17 on the moon, been the commander. He would have actually been the last man on the moon, but he turned it down like various reasons. I honestly, reading his book, I think he partly couldn't be bothered. Which... <laughs> <laughs> See, Matt, I thought the reason that he, t- he wanted to, or he was happy to turn it down was a simple survival technique in the sense that weren't the stats so ridiculous that it was a one in two chance of death. Yeah, yeah, the missions were incredibly dangerous. In fact, uh, like, luckily, uh, no astronauts actually died in space, but a remarkable number died simply training to go into space. And it was, yeah, one in two chance of death was the estimates for the Apollo 11 mission. And I think he was basically like, I've rolled the dice this many times. You know, you can't keep keep winning. You can't keep coming out with your your backside intact. If you're, I suppose, smart enough to be an astronaut, you're also smart enough to realize those statistics do not play around. And at some point, it's not going to work out well for everybody. He's basically the Dave Moore of space stuff because Dave Moore goes to roller coaster parks and gets beside the roller coaster and then looks at other people going on the roller coaster. Hundred percent. So this 100%. is this is why you like Michael Collins. He yes. he got close enough. He saw what it was about, but he doesn't want to experience the actual even more dangerous part. <laughs> In fairness, he's a lot braver than I am, Neil. Like I'm standing beside a roller coaster. This man went into space. Like it's I've not an really now a good analogy of Michael Collins holding children's coats as Buzz Aldrin <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> and Neil Armstrong go go onto the moon. Look, actually, maybe holding coats if he had some kind of a cloakroom might have made him a few quid because Matt tell Neil how much money the like arguably some of the most important men in history were paid as the astronauts who went to the moon so during the Apollo missions they got paid on a per day basis eight dollars a day eight dollars a day is mad eight yep equivalent in modern day terms of about fifty dollars a day 
And to put that into perspective for you, that's bugger all. <laughs> I mean, like one of the most dangerous things that has ever been attempted by humanity. And you're thinking, well, at least these guys will be millionaires. No. 50 today dollars a day. Eight then dollars a day. And they had to pay. Didn't they have to pay for lodgings out of that? Yeah. NASA had the cheek to deduct accommodation costs. Like <laughs> from that eight dollars a day. NASA was like, you can sort out your own accommodation if you want. <laughs> but we've got a lovely <laughs> lunar module here. <laughs> yeah, that does imply that they were like, if you don't want to go with us, I mean, we, yeah, sort out your own. Like, surely there's no Airbnb. There's no little blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I offered you a three star. There's no B&Bs on the moon and there's certainly no air. So they had to give up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no Airbnb would be a good name for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, they get loads of stars on TripAdvisor. And um, how <laughs> how many days were they in space? Then we'll say like Apollo Eleven, the one that we all know of. So I think it's about eight days, seven or eight days. So it takes it took about three days to get there, three days back, and I think for Apollo Eleven they stayed for. Uh, a matter of hours rather than days there. Yeah, so maybe seven or eight days. So 64, almost well, 64 dollars. Yeah, about 50 or 60 dollars yeah. for the whole trip. And then take your accommodation out of that. I would think, like, he, he's made the decision to turn down the moon for survival reasons, apart from, as you said, sometimes he just couldn't be, couldn't be bothered. But these are a macho... I mean, to be an astronaut, you've already got to go through, you know, fighter pilot training and all that kind of stuff. Then go through the type of training, as you said, that killed many astronauts. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to become an astronaut, particularly at this time. And, you know, they were macho lads. Tell Neil what they talked about, because um, Michael Collins wrote it in his autobiography, because it wasn't ever captured on radio. But they commented on, on some topographical and geographical um, elements of the moon's makeup. And they compared them to... <laughs> Some things which is just so ridiculous. Yeah, so I've read his autobiography, the autobiography of Michael Collins. It's a fascinating book, if you're interested, called Carrying the Fire. But it's very much of its time, published in the 70s. And when they're around the dark side of the moon, they were they were describing the moon and they were pointing out craters. And what were the words um, they were using? They're, they're, they're fantastic. They're causing, that's a big mother. Uh, and... <laughs> They were comparing them to breast. It was very much kind of locker room chat whilst they're out of radio shot. Oh, okay. Yeah, they compared them to, to to breast. All the lads were having a having a go at that. But then he continues the rant in his book, and it, it's something to to behold what what he writes. So if you're reading along at home, this is page three ninety two. He writes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that there's people waiting for this bit to have Michael Collins' autobiography. Finally, story time. Hit, hit the tit section. Woohoo! I only say that because people don't believe me with this. Yeah. But basically, yeah. basically says, still, the possibilities of weightlessness are there for the ingenious to exploit. Now, he's a highly qualified test pilot and engineer, so I'm sure he's got some good ideas. Mm-hmm. No need to carry bras into space, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> it gets worse. Um, Go on. Imagine a spacecraft of the future with a crew of a thousand ladies off to Alpha Centauri with 2,000 breasts. Oh, my God. God. To be fair, his maths, his maths is solid. 
Yeah. Biologically solid, I will give him that. I just think, you know, of its time is definitely a phrase we would use to describe this. Why was this not called carry on up the moon, by the way? That's... <laughs> There's more. Oh, please, please keep going. Uh, with 2,000 breasts bobbing beautifully and quivering delightfully in response to their every weightless movement... At which point I would have sacked my editor for not taking yes, that out. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree completely. <laughs> and I am the commander of the craft. And it's Saturday morning <laughs> and time for inspection. Oh my God, no. Do you, oh. know, do you know what it actually reminds me of? Speaking of space people. Oh God. It reminds me of the episode of Extras, the Ricky Gervais series, where Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Sir Patrick Stewart, is in the episode and he, Ricky Gervais's character gets to work, Andy Millman gets to work with him. He's sitting in his trailer and I won't do an impression of Sir Patrick Stewart because it's not good. But he basically says, um, you know, I've written a script. And he's like, oh, have you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm walking through the park and there's a police lady and I'm there and all of her clothes fall off. And <laughs> then uh, she tries to pick them back up, but I've seen everything. And and then and Ricky, like Andy Millman's going, right, I'm, I'm, what else? No, that's it. All of her clothes fall off, and I'm seeing, and he does it about ten times. He just keeps telling the same story where all of her clothes fall off. I love the idea that this dude is. He writes this, and like you say, so it goes to somebody junior who proofreads it in the in the agency is is editor's office, and they go, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, you've you've got four thousand women, which is eight thousand breasts. We think that's too many, yeah. so we've had a chat, and we think maybe a thousand tops. 2,000 boobs. I think I think people could go for that. And he's like, yeah, well, as long as I'm on inspection. No, no, you're definitely on inspection. That's we don't mind that bit. We don't mind that bit, but we just think there's too oh. many boobs for a small lunar capsule. Can I ask you where you got the book? Did you order online? Because I do think what would be amazing is rather than, rather than you buy it online, if you had to buy it in a bookshop, but you couldn't get it in the bookshop, it was outside in a little... In a little like bargain <laughs> basement, and they didn't allow it in the bookshop. I think that would be absolutely amazing for Michael Gahan's autobiography. Yeah, you'd have to go through some special curtains and go to the back of the bookstore. <laughs> no, that's a different thing. Yeah. How was he affected by being on the moon? Then, if if he is, it turned him sexist. Apparently, <laughs> um, I think that was the default situation for everybody in those days, or most people, like. I mean, we're saying he blase kind of Lee turned it down. Did it affect him in a way that, like, it's it seems to have, from what I've seen on TV, like various documentaries, you know, it affected different people in different ways. You know, was he the fella who was nearly got to the moon? Did he live his life kind of relatively normally? Was he massively the affected by beetle, it? as it were? Yeah, yeah. He was okay. I think he very much kind of accepted his lot. He had a long time to to think. He always knew he was never going to step foot on the moon. It wasn't a job. And then he didn't mm. want to, to do another three years of 50% chance of death for the off chance he might get to go again because nothing's certain. Uh, but it affected different people in different ways. Like Buzz Aldrin, I don't know if you, you, you've heard, he, he did a campaign within NASA before Apollo 11 to try and convince people to make him first on the moon. And oh, really? people sarcastically called him Dr. Rendezvous because he kept going on about space rendezvous. And it, um, But eventually he had like a breakdown after. And I've read his book. And at some point after he stepped foot on the moon, he became a used car salesman. Wow. 
I did not know yeah. that. I didn't know and that apparently, apparently he wasn't very good at selling cars <laughs> because he just kept talking <laughs> about space. I was just saying he's, yeah. he's going to constantly reference space. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, well, let's talk about the fact that, as we said earlier on, they got paid very little, Neil, right? The astronauts, yeah. apart from paying for their uh, accommodation, like the food wouldn't have been great on the three-day space travel back there and the three-day space travel back at the time you were there. So something happened, though, that we need to talk about, Matt, because Neil is what we term in Ireland a culture, okay? So he's somebody who lives outside of a city, uh, mm. one city in particular, that's Dublin. Anyone who lives outside Dublin is a culture in my eyes. But anyway, for Gemini 3, that mission in 1965, one of the astronauts, Neil, did something yeah. that I think will speak to your culture nature in a way that perhaps nothing else could. The man brought his own corned beef sandwich to space. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Did he have a tin of lilt? This is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Was was he allowed to do this? Oh no, Matt, tell him about the uproar this caused. Oh yeah, the, the, the Congress who signed off uh, all the finances went crazy about this. They thought it made... NASA looked stupid and they thought it could have been dangerous because when he got the sandwich out, crumbs started going everywhere in the zero gravity. They thought it could have got in the electrics and caused a fire. They, we all remember the it... episode of The Simpsons, Matt, where Homer did open a bag of chips when he went up into space and the his head then smashed into the ants. The ant colony got out. The chip crumbs and the ants got into the thing. They short-circuited and the whole thing was saved eventually by an inanimate carbon rod. Uh, which then got on the cover of Time magazine, not Homer, but the rod. But we remember this stuff like crumbs is a real issue when you're dealing with this level of sophistication. They kind of went crazy about it in Congress. One of the congressmen called it the $30 million sandwich, which I don't know where you get $30 million sandwich from, but a uh, pret or something. Um, but they. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, they had to apologize for it. They said, uh, so the, I think it's George Muller, NASA's associate administrator for manned spaceflight, said to Congress, we have taken steps to prevent the recurrence of corned beef sandwiches in future flights. <laughs> That's incredible. So, like, this has been reported on like in, in hearings and stuff, is it? Yep. They had to, the, the top brass of NASA had to go into Congress and answer questions about a sandwich. Which, in fairness, you know, is a small thing you could get in trouble for. Like, there are other uh, events that have been considerably more costly. Uh, Apollo 12 and 13, they had some pretty serious flaws. Apollo 12, right, they had a camera, Matt, a very expensive and important camera, which captures all of the footage of man going to the moon. What happened to that one? So, it got broken immediately. (laughs) <laughs> um, the astronaut Alan Bean his job he was the fourth man on the moon his job was to take get that camera out set it up we get some lovely footage but for some reason he pointed that camera directly at the sun and immediately broke it so there's no footage of Apollo 12 on the moon basically no footage of it it was quite interesting I did um, one of my shows I got a reviewer in and in my show I would always ask are there any conspiracy theorists in one person said, I, I don't believe it happened. It mm. was the reviewer. No oh. way. Uh, yeah. And in his review, he mentions this. Oh, there's no video footage of Apollo 12. Is I'm going to see what Stanley Kubrick was doing that month in 1969. <laughs> it's like, oh, mate. <laughs> Do me a favor. Come on. And, so, and, that guy, and that guy who made a ball to this 
was called Mr. Bean. I guess something runs in the family. (laughs) (laughs) Did they go to the moon in a small mini? Is that what happened there? (laughs) Well, obviously, so that's Apollo 12. I mean, we've seen Apollo 13 and we know Mm -hmm, what went mm -hmm, wrong there. mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of what went wrong there, okay, let us talk about a lady called Judith Love Cohen because she's, like, there's so many why would you tell me that worthy facts about the space race and about going to the moon? But this, Neil, I think that this following sequence of facts yeah. are possibly going to blow your tiny culture mind even more than a corned beef sandwich. It, that's, I was just going to ask that. Is it going to be the corned beef sandwich? Because well, you, you set this, unless, <laughs> unless the next sentence is Matt goes, and then do you know about the carvery on Mars? Um, <laughs> you've set well, a very high bar here. You judge, okay, Matt's going to tell you about Judith Love Cohen, then you judge whether or not this is a bigger, wilder fact than the corned beef sandwich. Matt, go. So, Judith Love Cohen, she was an engineer for NASA, worked on the abort guidance system, which saved the astronauts during Apollo 13. Her son is Jack Black. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, no, you've done it. I mean, I, I mean, $8 a day, you got me at that. Michael yeah. Collins, the guy who you'd absolutely expect to land on the moon, having missed out on the moon, you had me at that. Um, I mean, corned beef sandwich, oh, it is the Ferrero Rocher. You are spoiling this. Jack Black's ma saved Apollo 13. It's what you're trying to tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> was it... Was, <laughs> Now that's before he was born, presumably. So, so she, she was an engineer, a mathematician, a, a hidden figures sort of a person, was she? Yeah. So she was a mathematician uh, on in uh, the space program. Actually, when she worked at NASA was when she was pregnant with Jack. And there's this story that she was working on a maths problem when she went into labor. And instead of being like, uh, see you guys later, I'm off to give birth to a Hollywood star. She was working yeah. on that maths problem. She printed out that maths problem, solved it during labor, and rang the office with the results. <laughs> oh, what God, a woman. Hardcore. No wonder we got Jack Black. Because she worked for NASA and she gave birth to a Hollywood star, is there a point which, in which his star could collapse in on itself? If he becomes too dense. That's incredible. So I haven't seen Apollo 13 in a long time. And, and she worked on the abort guidance system. Is that what you said? So what, yeah. did that actually, what did that actually do? In essence, it was a simple backup navigation system. It was just what they had to use when the systems in the main spaceship like exploded or, you know, or everything stopped working. So pretty important, to be fair. Well, as you said, save the lives of the Apollo 13 astronauts because there was no other way to get back. And it was this this backup system that saved them. And that was Jack Black's man. I imagine him at a Hollywood party. You'd find Tom Hanks. You'd wait your entire career to walk up to Tom Hanks, wouldn't you? And just, uh, hi, Tom, this is Jack. My ma saved you. And then just walk away. Never explain it. You're only here because of my ma. And then walk away. That's fab. And she was an amazing woman, just to say. She also danced with the New York Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company, and she wrote children's books. So I think she set the bar quite high for Jack, and Jack was like, "Oh no, I've got to be talented now to match this." So, well, he he is because whatever we've seen him in, whatever you like him in, that's one thing. But if you haven't heard of his band Tenacious D, oh yeah, they're do yourself a favor, 
hilarious, but also musically incredible himself. And mm. Kyle Gass, another actor who make up Tenacious D. I highly recommend it. So come here, Matt. Look, we, you know, I painted you at the start as a, a stand-up comedian, a scientist, but a moon landing enthusiast. So let's lean into that for a second. Like, if I had to press you for a favorite moon landing mission, do you have one? Yeah, I, I think that's Apollo uh, Apollo 8. Well, I'm sorry to say that, yeah, to Neil and myself and possibly lots of our listeners were like, okay, I hear a word and a number. Yeah. So Apollo 8 was the first time we never stepped foot on the moon. We just uh, orbited the moon. It was right. basically the, the moon's first drive-by. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it happened around Christmas 1968. Um, and what I love about it is they had to do these these broadcasts back to Earth and they were under intense pressure. Um, they were described as the uh, the largest broadcast that had ever been done at Christmas Eve, 1968. And when the commander asked for some advice for this broadcast, he was told by NASA, just do something appropriate, which is <laughs> that's, very that's helpful. the only instruction. Yeah. Like that as a broadcaster, that is utterly terrifying so what did they come up with then a couple of things they they thought of but didn't do were a contemporary version of the a night before christmas a moon specific version of jingle bells uh, i would have loved to have heard that i would have, and i would have loved jack black to have sung it at a later point if he sung the, the moon specific jingle bells i mean i wrote one for my show oh you just give us the first two lines then jingle bells jingle bells what happened after that uh, we're by the actual moon. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a dead lifeless vacuum. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I want to hear more. That, nah, that's it. Edinburgh's in August. It's hard enough singing a bit of Christmas at that time. <laughs> but actually, tell Neil what they did do in the end, because like their decision, which probably seemed like the word appropriate, was not met that way by certain members of the public. So tell them what they did and then what the reaction was. Yeah, so they read from the Bible book of Genesis. It was well received in some quarters. I mean, the the actual broadcast won an Emmy. They won an mm. Emmy for it. So TV wasn't that great back then. Um, but uh, they, uh, when they returned from the mission, uh, NASA got sued by the American Atheist Society for breach of the freedom of religion. Oh, yeah, because we we covered. Um, do you remember we talked about Buzz Aldrin taking communion on the moon? That's right. They, he had to play it down because they were being sued by the Atheist Association at the time as well. Yeah. I have a question for you that I've just remembered because the other, when we were covering that on a previous episode, it's a live episode with Dear McGavin, if people want to listen to it. There was a fact in it that I told Dave that they had to get customs clearance forms, right? <laughs> and... Uh, I saw this on For All Mankind and I kind of thought maybe that can't be right. It's on Apple. It's a TV series. And uh, I went and I hunted down the, the sources for that. But the other thing that was in For All Mankind, so what we have here, Matt, is Werner von Braun, I think it was his name, was was the father of all this. Now, in the TV series, his history is exposed and it was extremely dark. Is that a true to life? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before he became, he was the father of the Saturn V rocket, arguably the most important thing to put men on the moon. He was a member of the Nazi party and the SS. And he was one of the high up people in a slave labor camp making the V2 rocket. And so the Americans just went, we'll overlook your, your previous behavior, but you are into uh, rocketry and your engineering skills and we are just going to take you on and you'll be the father of the space program. Essentially, after after the war, America was like, we want these these uh, capable German, uh, German scientists, 
but it's a bad look to bring over Nazis. So we, if we'll only have them if they weren't Nazis. They hit an immediate problem. They were all Nazis, mm. um, which is, yeah. So they did a secret operation called Operation Paperclip, where they brought over Nazi scientists and just didn't tell people. Well, Matt, I suppose, look, having an expert on the moon and someone who has spent so long, you know, reading, researching and reading page 392 of uh, Michael Collins' um, biography over and over again. I have a question, a general question. It's, it's an opinion one, I suppose. But why do you think we went to the moon? I mean, there was obviously, you know, there's inspirational JFK rhetoric that would have, you know, would be quoted to kind of be the reason why the American scientists wanted to quest for this this lunar adventure. But what, what do you think was really the reason behind all this? So I think it was it was the space race, obviously the race for domination of the space space and the moon using giant rockets, giant rockets which were essentially weapons, essentially right. the world's biggest dick measuring competition. Okay, uh, uh, which is why I think uh, personally I like to see it as slightly more purely that we went there for a f- like exploration. We just were drawn there, kind of like the uh, it's cheesy to say the fri- final frontier, but the next frontier. The, mm, the next mm. place to go exploring but yeah um it, although it's a space race yeah jfk used slightly more vague rhetoric when he was talking about it his justification in a speech when because I, I wanted to find out why did america do it and his justification speech he says this he says many years ago the great british explorer george mallory who was to die on mount everest was asked why did he want to climb it he said because it is there well space is there and we are going to climb it, um, which really clears it up for me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's as simple as that. I've seen the moon. Let's go to it. In fairness, JFK used the same logic to get onto Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's what he did with any beautiful woman that he saw, in fairness. Um, but they were being hockeyed the americans were being hockeyed if uh, the stuff that i've watched <laughs> which is for all mankind is to be believed at the if the early days like did they aim for the moon because it was the way to jump ahead of the soviets you know they, they, they didn't get yuri gargarin beat john glenn and you know so did they just go actually don't mind that we will go to the moon we can't get to mars but we can jump ahead of them by that way you're right they were getting battered in the space race uh, they were getting, they're getting absolutely battered and not battered in a good way, like a sausage, battered in a bad <laughs> way, like a Mars bar. Uh, um, <laughs> the Soviets had all the best firsts. They had the first satellite in space, the first dog in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first spacewalk. And it's actually crazy. When JFK said they were going to put a man on the moon, at that time, America had just had 20 minutes of suborbital spaceflight. Old, um, what's his name? Shepard, Al Shepard. Alan Shepard, yeah. And it was just, they leveled the playing field because now they were going to have to shoot men 250,000 miles into space towards the moon, a moving target. And they actually had to, I've heard the uh, metaphor now, I've got the scales wrong, but it's something like shooting an arrow at an apple from one side of a football pitch to the other and just hitting the, the skin of the apple list wow. that's the kind of shot they were doing so it just leveled the playing field immediately it's 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 incredible it's ambitious it wasn't actually jfk's first choice though to be fair oh jfk's first choice was to industrialize the desalination of salt water which would have really ruined my edinburgh show 
doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? No. <laughs> I mean, landing on the moon is essentially the mic drop moment of the space yeah. program, really. But the mic is short for Michael Collins. <laughs> it's almost the mic drop. What, what I don't know if Neil knows this, and you certainly probably don't, Matt, but Ireland has a space program and they have no intention of going to the moon. We are, in fact, going to the sun. And people have, have questioned this, questioned the logic of it. But the line that's coming out, the official line coming out of the Irish space program is that, don't worry, lads, we're not stupid. We're not going to go in the daytime. <laughs> He gets a tone of voice that I can tell something like this is coming, Matt. I could, I, I could only apologise. I, I, I'm annoyed at myself for taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah. But for years, people have wondered who who is the ghostwriter of Michael Collins' autobiography. And we have figured out it was Dave Moore. Oh, sorry, I do apologise, uh, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure, Matt Hobbs. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Moon Talker and everything else. Where can people find out uh, more information about you and what you do? Can they get you on social media? Where's the best place to go? Uh, yeah, so Twitter, uh, it's uh, at Matt Hobbs Comedy, and on Instagram, matt.hobbs.1, and that's Hobbs with one B. Thank you. Hobbs with one B. Okay, brilliant. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Matt Hobbs, the comedian and the scientist and the moon landing enthusiast. Neil, what did you think? Oh, well, he was class. I mean, he's on top of his game. He's clearly done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for 25, 26 nights and he hasn't let his that profound impact to his mental health that <laughs> nearly ends all of us uh, take away from his moon knowledge. Brilliant. Yeah, Can't no. believe Michael Collins was offered a chance to go back to the moon. The exact person you would think, I didn't get to go last time, I'd absolutely love to go. But like you on a roller coaster, okay, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I think the risks are just that bit too much. I'm just going to sit there and go, nah, I'll I'll fly up there. I'll look after the the rest of you, but you can all go down yourself. I'll hold the coat. The burger sauce dispenser in NASA has been blocked. (laughs) And according to Dave Moore logic, that means that the eagle might not land properly. So (laughs) I'm grand, thanks a million. All right, well, look, I've given you Matt Hobbs. What have you got for us next, Neil Delamere? I'm going to go slightly closer to the Earth than the moon. I'm going to tell you, and we're going to talk to, the man who invented Baileys. What a simple but intriguing tease of what is coming next time. Well, what's most intriguing about it is not Irish, South African. You're joking. You heard it here first. Oh, my God. Right. That's going to happen next week. And why would you tell me that? Thank you very much for listening. Find us on Instagram. He's at Neil Delmar Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. We are at Why Would You Tell Me That? And go see Neil do some comedy shows wherever he is. Go and find it out on neildelmar.com forward slash gigs. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 